I actually believe that we are misleading and misguiding people to say that the the thing you do for work needs to be the thing that you are most passionate about. Amen. No, just because I love it, it doesn't have to become my job. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Living Good Currency with Tony and Tobias. We appreciate you. We love all the love and support. And we welcome you back to another episode that we're really excited about. And for those who are listening for the first time, Tobias and I sit down with guests that really inspire us, that people who have lived a life that we believe of purpose, aligning their passions along with their purpose to do good for themselves and others. And we learn from them, and hopefully you do too. And today is no different, but it's exciting because this is a woman who we've never met. So you guys are going to listen to the conversations that we're literally having our first conversation but I, I was uh, a fan of her work, saw her, uh, different articles she's written, videos she's posted, books she's written. So I'm going to introduce you to Deborah Regal, who's a keynote speaker and consultant who teaches leadership communication for Wharton Business School and Columbia Business School. She's a regular contributor for Harvard Business Review, Psychology Today, Forbes, and Fast Company. She's the author of Overcoming Overthinking, 36 Ways to Tame Anxiety for Work, School, and Life. Okay. And she consults and speaks for clients, including Amazon, BlackRock, Heinzcraft, and the United States Army. Her work has been featured in worldwide media, including Bloomberg, Oprah, and the New York Times. Welcome to the show, Deborah. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. We made it. We finally got it on the calendar. <laughs> we made it. You know, the one book that I didn't mention in your bio is Go to Help. Yes. That is a book you wrote, correct? Yes. There you go. There you go. Overcoming Overthinking and Go to Help are, are uh, two books that I wrote with my daughter, Sophie, who's going into her senior year at Duke. Um, one we published right before the pandemic and one we wrote during the pandemic. So mm. they're certainly related. And uh, we're hoping that uh, the word gets out that there's no shame in asking for help. And all of us need to get better at, at giving it to. That's, That's right. right. Well, listen, can we go back a little bit more to, okay, so you mentioned your child. Go back to your childhood or what, you know, you went to some of the best, you know, the best business school. You teach at the best business schools. Um, were you always or at what age were you inspired to say, you know what, I'm going to go into business and leadership? Like, mm. how does that come about? Uh, I wouldn't say I'm I'm even yet inspired to go into business <laughs> and leadership. So, so honestly, in terms of my, my uh, professional and personal development, when I was a kid, I, I had planned to be a doctor. Uh, and I actually had a very specific specialty, which was I wanted to be a splinter and paper cut doctor. Wow. And of course, number one, that's called a dermatologist. <laughs> but number two, the reason that that really appealed to me, and, I, and right now as an adult, it makes even more sense, splinters and paper cuts are little things that cause a disproportionate amount of pain and discomfort, wow. right? So if you get a splinter or a paper cut, somebody goes, look at that tiny thing, just put a Band-Aid on it. And you're like, are you kidding me? This is killing me. Mm. Um, and so I think I was always a little bit interested in things that had a disproportionate impact, positive and negative, from something that maybe didn't look like it, it would. And, and that actually is sort of a theme that has shown up in my role as a leadership coach and a leadership consultant is it may even be invisible, but it's having a, a, a massive impact. Mm. So the, the way I really started my career, so uh, long story short, uh, organic chem knocked 
the wind out of me in college. And so I did not become a doctor, mm. but really the, the basis of, of growing up in my career started from my high school extracurricular activity, which was speech and debate. Mm. And so I spent every single day from age 14 to 17, learning how to design a presentation, deliver a presentation. I spent my summers traveling around North America, speaking competitions. And my senior year of high school, um, I won the national championship in public speaking and speech writing. Wow. But, no, no, no. no, but, no, no. My junior year, I didn't win because somebody crushed me at the national competition. Mm. And you may have heard of her, uh, a little a little person we know as uh, Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson. Wow. So she and I were always competing against each other. And I was so relieved when she graduated <laughs> so that I had a chance. Um, mm. And so I ended up. Uh, really learning public speaking and being invited uh, even when I was in college to colleges and corporations to teach people that. And then when I was in college at the University of Michigan, I helped found the University of Michigan's first improv comedy troupe. And so yeah. I was able to take the background I had in preparing for a presentation and now mix it with, well, what do you do if you can't prepare? And so that theme of helping people think about preparing and helping people have um, sort of a scaffolding for what to do when you can't prepare has been a through line of my professional career since I was 17 and I'm now 50. Mm. So I've been doing that part of my job for a really long time and then added on to it executive coaching, other kinds of communication and leadership training. But that really started when I was 14 years old, this, this part of my profession. I love it. I mean, the, the, a lot of times you go back to your childhood to discover maybe some dramas or things that you need to fix, but also it, it, it's the, it, it could be such a place where you could realize where did that spark come from? You know, yes. where did this spark that I keep chasing that I'm trying to figure out where I feel a little bit that I'm not fulfilling, you know, this is desire and it really just peeling back that onion and realizing, man, it's, it's been when I was six. I mean, we interviewed someone yesterday who was at, when they're at age six, the spark came. And led to their successful career. You're like, and, but then there's people that are listening right now. They're saying, well, that sounds great. Congratulations for you guys. But I can't think of what my spark was as a child. I, I kind of liked everything. Not sure what, or do you, do you, um, do you have a way for them to kind of, you know, discover what this, uh, this, this spark can be to, do you teach that yeah. at all? So I've got a couple of different perspectives. And, and while I am not a career coach, Correct. right, that's its own specialty. Yes. The leaders who I do executive coaching with are often talking about that in the context of a, you know, a job or a career. Yes. I actually believe that we are misleading and misguiding people to say that the, the thing you do for work needs to be the thing that you are most passionate about. Amen. Uh, I, I don't believe that. I think that sets people up for a lot of frustration. What I do believe and what I do say to people is as they're thinking about their job or their career, I ask them to reflect on wh what do you want your life to look like and feel like? And your job is a part of that. So pick up, pick a, a, a job or a career that you have that allows you to live the kind of life that you want. And sometimes what that is, is that they pick a job or a career that pays them enough so that they can pursue their hobbies on the weekends or gives them enough flexibility 
that they can care for you know their family or take care of hobbies during the week the job doesn't have to be the passion the job has to permit your life to fulfill your passions <laughs> that, that goes into that work-life balance we were just talking about you know this um in a previous call wayne dyer god rest his soul would often say if you change the way you look at things the things you look at change from a quantum physics standpoint mm. so if you take that what you just said is if you put the emphasis on so much of the passion, because they say, well, if you love what you do, it's not called work, right? We hear that a lot. Mm -hmm. And so people are trying, yeah. well, I want that. I mean, who, who doesn't want to work? So you're constantly, right. so it's not necessarily that's wrong. That fits some people's, mm -hmm. you know, work that they absolutely love what they do and therefore it doesn't feel like work great. But what about the rest of the people out there? But I love the way you, if you just change the lens, if you just change it like, it's less about the fact that you're pursuing this particular work passion of yours, but what this work profession is doing is allowing you to focus more on your personal and perhaps spiritual passions and uh, taking advantage of your time. And I, and I think that that frees up the burden that one may feel because they can reevaluate the time that they're spending. That's right. I mean, you got to look at it holistically. And um, a couple things occurred to me. So first of all, um, I quoted Wayne Dyer in every speech that I gave in high school. I, I think he was in there everywhere. So that is just ongoing genius, number one. Number two is, you know, I think about my husband, Michael, who's also an executive coach, and his he's got a lot of hobbies and a lot of passions, but the thing that really got him through the last couple of years is, you know, everybody started baking sourdough and then they quit. He did not quit. I sent him, my daughter and I sent him last summer to bread camp. Wow. Uh, he... He, and he bakes so much bread that, you know, every couple of weeks he brings it to, you know, our local food pantry for food delivery. He just, it's not the eating. That's my job. It's the act of baking. Mm. And so many people have said to him, well, why don't you open up a bakery? And he was like, no, it just because I love it, it doesn't have to become my job. Right, right, it, right. It, fits into, it fits into my life mm. and it allows me to do my job and pursue my hobbies. And the last thing that I'll say about this, I was just reminded when you were talking about the idea of, you know, your work shouldn't feel like work. So I had a really, really bad habit, probably a bad habit for, uh, you know, 15 of the almost 20 years in which I've, I've been doing this work, which was to never treat myself. Mm. So if there was something that I wanted, like fresh flowers, I was like, oh, I don't know that I really need that. If I wanted a massage, I was like, oh, I don't really need a massage, a nice dinner. I would never treat myself. And my husband would always be like, if you want something, get it and buy two of them. And I was like, oh, I don't need that. And all of a sudden, one day it hit me what that was about. And it was because, because my work doesn't feel like work. It didn't register to me, right? And I believe that rewards treats and indulgences are the reward for doing hard work. Mm. But because my work didn't register as hard work, I didn't feel entitled to have mm. fun and nice indulgences. Mm. And I was like, well, on one hand, how lucky to have work that doesn't feel like work. And number two is um, what a, what a terrible thing for me to deny myself things that give yes. me pleasure yes. because I feel like I'm not working hard enough to earn it. Oh man. Wow. I got it. I got it. Um, I wanted to go back to this point. You made a very important uh, point. I don't know if you know too much about my, my background. Uh, you know, 30 years inside of an incarcerated space uh, for a crime that I didn't commit uh, through the work that I did inside, a uh, service that I did inside with the souls of the men 
uh, inside that, you know, I, my sentence was commuted. Prison taught me a few things, and one of the things it taught me is, you know, it's a system of pain and trauma in our worst moments. It wasn't a situation in which uh, we're being celebrated. It was a punitive. So I found out very quickly the power of comedy, the power of laughter, and it was rooted really in maybe a mindfulness practice, just like 30 years ago before, I guess, most people was using mindfulness. But it was about, about rooting myself in the state of being gratitude and being grateful. I'm alive. We are alive. So allow that to be a better energy than being angry and full of rage and maybe shame. So I'm asking you, we're asking you, what is the power of comedy? What is the power of laughter? And even if it's laughing at ourselves or our circumstances. So uh, as a person and a leader, can you offer us some insight on that? Yeah. Oh, what a what a thoughtful question, and and thank you for rooting it in the context of of what you found in in your experience. Yes. Um, you know, I will I will often say to to my clients, and even hopefully you know future clients, people who haven't hired me yet to work with their teams or their leaders, to say, you know, I'm I'm always going to take the work seriously but I'm not going to take myself that seriously. And in fact, I work best with people who take the work seriously and don't take themselves so seriously. Mm, I love it. So I think the, the laughter, number one, it's a great stress reliever, as you certainly know, right? We release all sorts of, you know, uh, endorphins and it just, it just feels good. Something that I have found to be true about comedy is comedy is based in truth, right? So people when you go to a stand-up comedy night or an improv or something like that, the place where people laugh the hardest or where they're like, and then laughing so that their cheeks hurt is the place where they spoke a truth that you recognize in yourself. I love it. Right. And it's so, it can often be the spoonful of sugar that helps the medicine go down. When, when somebody is sharing a truth that might be a little too painful to acknowledge with a direct hit, yeah. But it's a sideways way of, of helping you think about things. Yeah. Um, and I will also just say that um, I, because a lot of the work that I do is helping leaders become better communicators and presenters, uh, often I'm working with a leader who is trying to use humor, but it's at other people's expense. And I say, look, my guideline is if there's going to be a schmuck in your story, it better be you. That's right. Right. You're not throwing anybody under the bus. If you're making fun of anyone, it better be you. And that actually makes you a little bit more accessible and vulnerable to people who may be intimidated by the power that you bring. So there are so many uh, ways to leverage humor. Um, and the one caveat I was I would have is that it's also very personal, personalized, uh, cultural, a whole bunch of things. And so. I don't like when somebody goes, oh, come on, that was funny. If I didn't find it funny, <laughs> I didn't laughing. find it funny. But I'm not going to, I'm not upset the fact that you found it funny. Right, but right. don't don't tell me what's funny to me. That's right. right. Uh, you know, Maya Angelou has said, you know, a mercy upon another genius who lives on and on. Uh, people actually don't, like, remember what you say is how you make them feel. And mm-hmm. I found that so uh, true in leadership behind the walls and within life. It's not so much the eloquence of my words, the deepness or profoundness of my thoughts. It's how people feel when they leave our presence. And I figured that those truths, and maybe these are like some hurtful truths, especially dealing with incarcerated people or people who might be imprisoned in certain concepts, ideal 
yeah. implicit, explicit biases kind of situations that when they can leave feeling better than they uh, maybe when they first met you, that we've accomplished something in life. So when I heard you say that was a part of your college experience in, you know, introducing humor, I found a connection in that, that yeah. I was one of the people who introduced just really laughing. You know, since we're here, we don't have to be miserable. And uh, right. and that opened up. And I'd say just generally in life, there's some rough things going on in the world around us. You don't have to be in California or America or wherever, Russia or any other place. Just in life, just dealing with gas and uh, baby milk or whatever your problem is, that we have to take time for that radical self-care that I believe you're speaking on, and uh, we do deserve mm-hmm. that, even if you're having, you know, I guess, fun in your occupation. Well, we have to take care of ourselves. And uh, yeah. another thing is, uh, I believe, that being able to smile. You know, now, as you said, the scientific uh, data is out on the power of smiling, the power of hugging, the power of being happy. And so, yeah, that was a, a strong point yeah. for me, Tony. Well, you know, it, it's funny that you say that my husband, Michael, has often right. referred to me as, like the world's most enthusiastic pessimist, right? Because I bring a lot of like smiles and joy and energy, but my wiring is pretty Mm. pessimistic. I think that's probably rooted in having, you know, multiple anxiety disorders. Mm. And I believe you can have both. Like in, in general, I'm, I'm not sure we're all getting out of this alive. (laughs) Over that. Yeah. I mean, so I I think it's interesting. I think you still, you can have tough times and, you know, as you mentioned, you know, shame and setbacks and all those sorts of things. Um, And if you can find a little levity in there, it makes a big difference. Uh, You know, uh, one of the things that I'll tell you is at one point in my life when my baby, so my kids are 21. I have 21 year old Mm. twins, Jacob Mm. and Sophie. And when they were, Somewhere between I was pregnant with them and they were first born, two of the closest people in my life became very, very ill. And we were all the same mm. age. So I would, you know, we were all about 28 years old. Um, one was my husband's first cousin who became one of my closest friends. And one is my cl- one of my closest friends from my comedy troupe in college. Mm. And they both became very, very ill. Um, and we sort of got together and decided that while we didn't do this, we should order, uh, we should put together a company called Black Humor Greeting Cards for people who are really ill. And so the first card we wrote was, well, at least they said long-term illness. (laughs) And so we just figured like, I was sitting there and I'm saying, can I say this? And the two of them who were very ill, one of whom is, you know, had survived and one of whom didn't, were giving us all permission to laugh at something that you would otherwise just be broken about. Right, right, right. Another thing came to mind in which uh, Tony knows, but maybe a lot of the audience, uh, I study languages. And uh, my father was a mythologist and so I'm looking at these names, Michael. I'm looking at the name Sophie. I'm looking at the name Jacob. So with your twins, I don't know if you know how Michael got his name, but in several mythologies, Michael represents strength. And so then how did Jacob, if you mind telling us, and Sophie, because I'm going to go somewhere with this, how did they get their names? Yeah, thank you for asking that question. So in the 
Jewish tradition, yes, yes, yes. you are named for um, people who have passed away who you've loved. Yes. Um, and I just want to make a distinction. So there's there's a few different kinds of Judaism. Yes. So uh, my family is Ashkenazic Jew, which yes. means we're from Eastern Europe. Yes, In yes. the Sephardic tradition, which are people from uh, Spain, North Africa, those sorts of countries, yes. they name for the living. Right. Um, but we name for the dead. And so... Um, my grandmother was Sophie. Yes. So that's how she got her name. Yeah. And Jacob was a little bit of a of a yeah, yeah, mind yes, game. Yes, 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 so yes, yes. Jacob's Hebrew name is Akiva. Yes. Akiva. Um, and Akiva was the Hebrew name of Michael's grandfather. Hey. And so Akiva, um, we basically turned into Jacob in the English and Akiva in the Hebrew. And their middle names are also named for people that we love. Yes, yes. And we had a lot of pressure on us because while my brother had already had three kids and had taken care of a lot of names on his end, mm. we were the first grandchildren in my husband's family. And so they wanted us to name for everyone. We yes. said, well, first of all, we did you a solid. We are having twins. Yeah. So we, we already can name for more people than anybody yes. else, yes. but we couldn't name for everyone. So Sophie's Hebrew name is Shana, which is Michael's grandmother's right. Hebrew name. Right. And um, we had a lot of love to name for. Yes. Yes. Sophie, uh, yesterday, uh, our, our beautiful sister that came on, her daughter name was Sophie, but Sophie Wisdom, you know, Chokman, Hebrew, yeah. Hickman in the Arabic language. So we're very sensitive to words and language and so yes. uh, Jacob and you know in several faiths representing the latter you know so it takes strength to elevate in our lives and there's no greater strength than wisdom so I'm seeing this energy surrounding uh, you and how you just so candidly said yes uh, you know uh, it might be some kind of mental uh, stuff going on here and there inside of your life and you said that and you said there might be a dichotomy going on you know i'm the most enthusiastic and the word enthusiastic actually means to bring in god in space oh, i didn't know that yeah in enthusiasm give, give me the etymology oh, of that. Yeah, i want to know yeah, more yeah. in the in through uh theo which is god as the act oh. of right enthusiasm bringing god into space I a pessimistic or negative space and no none of us are getting out of here alive show where you said that uh this is just uh uh, several things that make sense to me as today me and Tony was watching you on whatever YouTube. And he said, she's powerful. I said, oh, brother, quite powerful. So uh, now it makes sense. See, <laughs> when you unless you're around Tobias who spent this time, you know, he had this, he took advantage of the time that he had. And to Clearly. Learn. And yes. We'll have conversations with people. And the first thing he'll say is, yeah, I got to go back to the first thing you said 20 mm. minutes ago. And it's something that they just whimsically said, and then it just brought them to a you know a conversation they've never had before in life, you know, or yeah. and that's just what he does. That's his skill set, as Thank we just witnessed right now. I, that that's that's amazing because what you're what you're doing, and it's it's a skill that I use in coaching, and you are doing it brilliantly, which is to listen for underneath what's being said, yes. right? You. And there's so much data underneath. What's being said, and you're going for it, and I love it. it and means I love a lot too. coming from you. Thank you. That Thank means you. a lot. It really does. So I want to spend. You know, we have a few more minutes. I want to spend the time having our audience experience what um, you know. You have 35 strategies in the mm. book. Go to help. Is that correct? 
31. 31. We weren't 31. that creative. 31. At 31, we said, we're tired. Yeah, yeah. Please, 31. can we be done? 31, yeah, 31 flavors. We love that. Okay. 31 flavors, right. Go to help. Now, we don't have time, obviously, in this. Uh, we'll have we'll have to have you back on. But um, Please. one of the things... One other thing we love about when you're into this the space of, of of attraction, whatever it's law of attraction, we mm-hmm. believe in good currency. And 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 for for those who are listening for the first time and, and talking to you, is we believe everyone shares a purpose, which is to do good for themselves and others daily. That's to be of service to yourself and others daily. And the key to life is to take take your passions, which are personal, professional, and spiritual, and align them with your perfe- uh, pur- purpose, which is to do good for yourself and others. That's why, for example, when you say, for example, you don't have to necessarily pr- pursue a passionate career, mm-hmm. and make that falls in line with our journal and our and our our way of just how to g- you gamify good. How do you make take advantage of the time that from the time you wake up to the time you go to bed? And we it all starts with making the intention, right? So intentionally, I'm going to write a few words on my personal purpose to be healthy, good brother, good father, mm-hmm. good husband. Professionally, I want to work on projects that scale good news. And spiritually, I want to please God. So then every action that I do throughout the day, I try to align with that so that I know. And I leave the results up to fate, whatever it may be, right? Because we, yeah. we plan on having this conversation. Mm. They plan on the Wi-Fi going down. <laughs> That's the result. That's out of our control. And when you let go of the results, it actually is freedom. As long as you yes. can say, did I make the intention? And anyway, by focusing on the intention, you're also really manifesting these things um, as long as you take the proper action. And so when we were looking at some of the things that we wanted to talk about today, yes. we went on and looked at some of your YouTube clips to say, okay, well, we don't have time to discuss all 31 and other uh-huh. things, but what are some of the things that resonated? And in real time, something we just dealt with this morning, yes. <laughs> we popped up, which one was it? 25, number 25, 25, right? We popped up number 25. We didn't plan. We didn't know what number 25 really was going to resonate. i got to look at what that is. No, 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 no. We'll tell you. No. We'll tell we're going to tell you what number 25 is. But number 25 so resonated with us that I literally just, we, we just had to stop and look at each other. And so, can we share what 25 is? Yes, uh, 25. Sure. Is, it's the encouragement for commitment and, and accountability. And accountability yes. The dirty word. You tell we? us the dirty word. Oh, I'm so glad I'm gonna. I mean, look, I'm from New York, so yeah. I got a lot of dirty words. Yeah, right, 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 right. But this right. one is safe for work. Yeah. So you said the dirty yeah. word, and I let you yeah, go on to that. The dirty word is we. We. Please, please. Yes. And please. so, um, look, you are you are a um, a lover of words, as I am, and I'm sure there are plenty of people saying. No, we, we want to create a team. We do mm. want to have, we, we want people to feel included. Mm. And so not, we'll use our improv, yes and. Yeah. Yes and when you are trying to hold or help somebody hold themselves accountable for something that they intend to do and the results that they intend to produce, when you say, what do we need to do and what are we going to do next? It actually confuses or dilutes who is actually supposed to do the thing. And so look, I work with leaders and leaders are wanting to be compassionate, but also need to hold people accountable for things. Mm. And I say, if you can change one thing, stop using the word we, I know it sounds compassionate. It's actually muddying the waters because it isn't we, unless it is, it's you or me. And so I think that little word can make a big difference. Yeah, a huge difference. And just something we were dealing with, you realize you're right because that's where also I'm over. I'm a big believer in over communicating. 
you know, we can talk about, can you go, you know, can you please go buy me some tomatoes? And they come back with, you know, a bunch of small green tomatoes. <laughs> and I meant no, uh, you know, big plump red tomatoes. I just wasn't, I didn't communicate. And that's where the problems right. come in, right? Just over communication. And I think you're right. You know, being careful with a, we, we were you, it was such a perfect rule um, or lesson or strategy, strategy um, because yeah. you're right. It, it, it not only muddles the communication of the expectations, it also gives a valid excuse to the person you're trying to hold accountable and responsible. Now, whether they use that excuse just to kind of say, well, I don't know, mm-hmm. or it's a true valid excuse. Like well, you said, we, and yeah. So anyway, just that one. Uh, and another thing that we, we, we spoke on this in depth, as a matter of fact, the prep became on the stratagem and we're not coming from a judgmental accusatory you or woo. No, this is really coming from a place, as you said, uh, it's the same spirit. What can I take off your plate? When you said yeah. that, what can I take off your plate? That's so you're coming, 12, from, I think. Yes, you're coming from a place of care. You're coming from a, a place that I am into you, and I'm seeking to put us in the best position by focusing on you and your needs. And so uh, yeah. we took that uh, to heart. So I just wanted to know, are we on point? Are we, on, are we seen? Are oh, we- yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that – so – people are completely overwhelmed right now. I mean, and I think one of the hard things about people feeling overwhelmed right now is there's a belief that like, you should be over it already. Well, guess what? We're not, right? Uh, Sorry, not over it. Number two is um, people have compassion fatigue, right? I'm tired of helping, yeah? And, um, And one of the simplest things that you can do is to offer to take something off somebody's plate if in fact you have a place to put it yes. or decide we don't need that plate right now. Hey, I love it. I right. Love it. And love it. so just to let somebody know that I believe that you are having a hard time struggling or maybe not struggling, but things could be easier for you. And I want to help you with that. What can I take away from you and do myself? What can I take from you and give to somebody else? Or what do we? What can we just decide? That would be lovely if that happened right now, and it doesn't have to happen now. Oh. And when people get asked that questions, you watch their yes. shoulders drop from yes. their ears yes. and just feel a, a huge sense of relief. And it's such a simple thing to do. And you oh. must see that all the time in leadership, um, where in, employees naturally infer or imply or put their own rationale what needs to get done from a leader that didn't communicate or overly communicate so they may be sweating and stressing about the minutia or something that is in the weeds that Mm -hmm. had they communicated without maybe expressing weakness or feeling uh showing any vulnerability but if they communicate properly then the leader can say oh that's not even something to to stress about let's either i can handle that or someone else should be handling that or let's let's get that off your plate Um, Yes. I I think that's absolutely right. And I will just make a little shout out for um, the benefit of showing some vulnerability, right? And this is, I'm not going to overstep Brene Brown, right? (laughs) Brene Brown's got this covered. Um, I will say though, um, that I've I've worked, you know, vulnerability is, is certainly one of the words of the trade. And I've worked with leaders in 
specific professions where their whole training is about not having vulnerability. And I don't mean it personally, but for example, if you are in financial services and banking, right, if you are in, you are, you are protecting your clients against risk and, you know, volatility and vulnerability. So to say to a leader in a role that's been trained to not be vulnerable, become vulnerable, it's actually the right mm. message, but you'll love this, the wrong word, right? It. So we've been experimenting with new words. So rather than trying to be vulnerable, what if you were willing to say, I don't have it all figured out, or hey. there's more I could learn here, or, you know, I've experienced setbacks too. Take the word vulnerability off the table. If it, if it doesn't strike you the right way and it feels like it would undermine your credibility, but at least show that you're learning, you're growing and you don't have it all figured out. Oh, we appreciate you. I think we have, I'm going to, I just want to ask, so Deborah, you and your daughter came up with and wrote this book. Just, can you just share that family bond? Like, how did that happen? Like what, what is your daughter? I mean, she's at Duke clearly. And is this, is this a time where, because we were just talking earlier as well as about, different generations and the millennials and the Gen Z's and, and different psychologies that they may have in the workplace and different, they grew up a different way. They had the technologies and different things and resources. So this book is written from two different generations mm. and perspectives. So, it is. so these strategies you found are both for probably the leader as well as the one being led. And I would imagine sort of, or how, how did this come about with your daughter? Yeah. So first of all, I just want to give a shout out to Gen X because mm. we are the forgotten generation. Yes, yes. So just shout out to my fellow Xers over there. Yes. 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 <laughs> Woo woo. So um, I I I certainly recognize that we are of different generations. We and the way that the generational lens showed up in both overcoming overthinking our first book and then this book go to help is that I the audience I had in mind when writing this book was for. Um, Uh, professionals, right? Leaders, uh, direct reports, people using this in organizational life and parents, Mm. right? I mean, I can tell you that many of the skills that I use in, you know, leadership are are skills that I use as a parent. Uh, And Mm. Sophie wrote this, Sophie's contributions to this book were written for um, somebody trying to manage up to their parents, right? So for, for teens, for young adults, for adult children of aging parents. So Mm. between, between the roles of, you know, professionals, parents, partners, and, you know, um, offspring, which should have a P, but I will let you get back to me on what that is. We sort of split, we sort of split the generational approaches. So the book has examples from, you know, leadership coaching in a workplace to challenges that parents have to challenges that, you know, young people have, uh, because being able to offer help well, being able to ask for help well, and being able to actually accept it and receive it well, doesn't know an age or generation. I think this is, I'm so glad we got that one last, uh, that, that, Mm -hmm. that was a powerful um, explanation because there's very, there's not enough of those resources. I feel like that can actually combine both from that perspective. So um, I know we're going to do this rapid fire round that Tobias is going to do. And then right before we finish, we want to make sure that we know to our audience knows where to follow you and where to uh, buy the books. Okay. Awesome. Rapid fire. And this is real simple. Give us your favorite quote, your favorite quote. Yeah. Quote. Quote. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. uh, The purpose of life is to be defeated by greater and greater things. Rilke. 
the purpose of life is to be defeated by greater and greater things. That's one problem I like reflecting. Next, your favorite book for the moment Um, or in the general? Yeah, my favorite book is not of the moment. My favorite book is A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. Mm. Grows in Brooklyn. And lastly, your favorite natural space. Your favorite natural space. Uh, oh, I the, see it. I see the it. garden I have in my backyard. Of course. Does that count? Yes. yes. Man, that's the yeah. most important natural space. Oh, I thank you, and uh, we honor your presence today. Deborah, this has been awesome, and you know, thank you've you. been such a breath of fresh air, and um, this is the best part about what we're trying to do. We want to just empower our audience, and we appreciate you. So where can we, our audience follow you and also buy the books? Awesome. So uh, you can get Overcoming Overthinking and go to help on Amazon. Awesome. Uh, or if you call your local bookstore, they will stock it for you. Nice. Um, depending on how you feel about Jeff, <laughs> you can <laughs> decide where you want to buy it. Uh, you can find me on my website at uh, com, and maybe we'll spell it somewhere we'll for have folks. It. We'll have it. Come, yeah, come find me on LinkedIn. I'm always posting those videos and the articles that I write. So if you're interested in any of these topics, that's a great way to find me. And uh, I'm also on YouTube. Mm-hmm. So come find me any of the places that feel easy to you. I definitely recommend our audience do that. That's how exactly how I found Deborah was on LinkedIn, watching these videos on YouTube. They're so powerful. They're so, and in the and some of them are long, which is great. You can enjoy it. You can sit back and relax. And then the, there's also these very mm. short bursts of, of strategies from your go to help that I think are unbelievably powerful. So Deborah, thank you so much for your time. We thank appreciate you. you. And uh, looking forward to having you back on the show. Would love it. Awesome. Thank you very much. Don't forget to check out new episodes every Monday. We're super excited about this. I'm Deborah Grayson Regal. I'm Tony Samadani. I'm Tobias Tubbs. And we are living living the currencies. Hey.